Hello, welcome to Raw File News. I am Topher M. Ford, your host. I've got Brandon Givens here with me. Brandon, how are things going with you? They're all going pretty well. It was uh, Mother's Day. So, went out, or got, uh, got a little tart for the wife and some flowers, and uh, had a nice, pleasant uh, brunch, and went for a walk in the park, and that uh, was nice. Oh, nice. Did you say tart or tarp? Uh, tart, like uh, like kind of like a pie. Right. Okay. That's kind of what I thought, but for a second, it, it sounded like you got her a tarp. And <laughs> I was like, okay, I get maybe that's a regional thing. I don't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe it's very rainy there. I don't know. There will be a yurt, but okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about some uh, some news. Uh, we're going to start off today in Brazil. Uh, Reuters is reporting that CIA director William Burns told Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro to lay off his claims of election fraud. Uh, Burns apparently said this during an informal conversation in July 2021, according to unnamed sources from Reuters, quote, at the dinner, according to one of the sources, Heleno and Ramos, oh, and just to be clear, that's National Security Advisor Augusto Heleno. Uh, Brazil's national security advisor. Heleno and Ramos sought to dismiss the significance of Bolsonaro's repeated allegations of voter fraud. In response, the source said, Burns told them that the democratic process was sacred and that Bolsonaro should not be talking in that way. Burns was making it clear, this is uh, the source, Burns was making it clear that elections were not an issue that they should mess with, said the source, who was not authorized to speak publicly. It wasn't a lecture. It was a conversation. Uh, National Security Advisor Augusto Heleno said that conversation about elections never happened, end quote. So as October elections near in Brazil, Bolsonaro trails his leftist opponent, uh, former President Luiz Inacio Lula da Silva, uh, in current opinion polls. Many people in Brazil worried that Bolsonaro's ongoing ongoing claims of election fraud will serve as an excuse to reject election results if he loses. Although the meeting was meant to be secret, Bolsonaro went on to reveal the meeting later in a social media post. He said, quote, we analyze how things are. In Venezuela, people can't stand to talk anymore. But look at Argentina. Where is Chile going? What happened in Bolivia? The group of Evo Morales returned, and even more, the president who is there with a buffer term is in prison, accused of undemocratic acts. Are you feeling any resemblance to Brazil? Now, with all due respect to you, you are a force, but you don't decide, end quote. So um, it's, it's interesting. Um, from what I understand, Brazil and the CIA have maintained pretty good relations over the years. Uh, and we know how the CIA in general has felt historically about leftist presidents in South America. Well, I mean, that's that's why this conversation would be kind of rich. It's like, uh, CIA, you're telling us to respect the validity of elections and that uh, that bad-mouthing them is right. <laughs> isn't really cool, you know? Uh, yeah, it's that's it is. It really is. But, you know, uh, they say... The CIA, we've got a, a a brand new, a new CIA that does New and improved. New and improved CIA that respects all democracies. Oh. Uh, asterisk. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, hopefully, hopefully lead in that direction. Um, yeah, there was who was the the guy? There's a Honduran president. We were alleged to have assisted his coup, condemned it openly, but then there's an allegation we assisted. But now we want him for running drugs. So <laughs> was that uh, Duterte? Uh, no, no, oh, wait, no, that, no. That'd be the Philippines. Oh, uh, right, I can't right. remember his name. Actually, it's pro I probably shouldn't have brought it up since Is I would need to kind of review over Manuel Zelaya. I think Zelaya was the leftist they got overthrown. Memory, he was uh, the one that he had a, uh, a referendum to ask if people would be interested in changing the Constitution to allow him to run again. And uh, right wing used that as like a pretext for removing him for office. So like, right, yeah, I'm looking at the, at, at the Wikipedia entry, which said, in July 2011, Honduras's Truth Commission concluded that Zelaya broke the law when he disregarded a Supreme Court ruling ordering him to cancel the referendum that his, that his removal from office was also illegal and a coup. Yeah. And, um, yeah, his replacement, I can't remember if this is the immediate one, but part of that sort of opposition group uh, ended up being kind of uh, feared for being in bed with the drug cartels. Uh, but, yeah, 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 yeah. I can understand our interest in that and even a lot of direct involvement but in that, that region because the lack of stability bleeds over, but it seems as if we kind of create a lot of it by accident or, or not. And or by accident or intention or possibly, you know, like apathy. If the apathy would I think it would be a mixture of um apathy and accident. Right. Uh, well, like like oh this uh this happened as a result of our meddling but we are not concerned because we got what we wanted out of right. the meddling. Right. Yeah, and, and you know then we've got uh yeah, all the the migrants that that come fleeing this drug violence and fleeing the corrupt governments that are meddling the dictators and right. the lack of law and order. Yeah. But I mean I don't at the same time even if the US had not intervened those might still be you know, problems that, you know, we, maybe the drug cartels would still be causing violence. And so, but that's we'll it's impossible. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can't, you can't, it's impossible to know, but at the same time, we do know what our, our government has done. And, you know, and we can see, well, these were the people that we helped to get into power. And these were the things that happened when they were there. So yeah, <laughs> it doesn't matter if someone else would have done it too. That's kind of pretty much irrelevant. It's just a whataboutism. Right. Um, but I uh, could also see the, you know, the CIA director's interest in doing this because if, you know, like, so if Bolsonaro, like his constant claims that there is going to be election fraud and he's, you know, priming the people to believe that the election results are false or illegitimate if he loses, you know, he's he's taking that from Trump's playbook and, you know, Trump almost got away with that. And then if Bolsonaro does get away with it, it's going to help reinforce uh, the Republican Party to pull something like that no, off. Trump did upcoming. get away with it. Uh, Trump did get away with it. It just didn't oh, work as he planned for it to. That's what I mean. That's what I mean is he he almost got to stay president illegally. 
because of it. And if Bolsonaro succeeds in that effort, that's going to reinforce, you know, that, you know, since the Republican Party in America is already still making those same claims and using those claims as an excuse to, you know, pass more voter restriction laws here in the states. So. Yeah, well, well, it's one of the reasons I'm worried about uh, civil war in the U.S. or or political violence, or and because as the country remains gerrymandered, and um, the you have that kind of rural state voting in balance, and what we've seen with like the Supreme Court being kind of stacked to the, to the right, you're going to have Not a kind of <laughs> very right. stacked, but yeah, right. Right. well, you're going to have a soon we're going to have a situation where like. 55% of the population is voting in one direction, but losing consistently. I mean, we're already kind of there. Like many states, it's like the country's about split, you know, about 50-50 about as, as an entire nation between kind of Democrats and Republicans. And, you know, you've got the independent voters, all right, they go either way, but, you know, they go either way about half the time. But it's... Over, but the opinions have kind of drifted to the left. And when, when like, how did the actual votes turn out? Oh, it's usually about 51, 52 percent, you know, leaning, leaning Democratic. But yeah, they been, almost always win the popular vote, at least when it comes to the president. Yeah. Uh, but the Electoral College manages to keep, you know. And because uh, of gerrymandering. Like, even if you look at the nation as a whole and how it votes for the House, it's not really representative of, of the people. But, right. you know, that's the whole thing when you have single-member districts and, you know, it's kind of like, well, uh, it's not that it's necessarily illegal and there may not even be anything nefarious. We, we, kind, of, we kind of gerrymander ourselves, too, by, you know, like, left-leaning people tend to move to cities and so it, it ends up. Yeah, you know, so you'll have the countryside uh, might be twenty, thirty percent um, left, you know, left leading, but their votes essentially end up being thrown away. But it's not because they were gerrymandered; it's just that's where they live. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know, and so, so we we are in a situation where it seems like land is getting to vote as opposed to people, and it's like here in Florida, it's. You know, it's getting kind of scary if you're not a hardcore far right conservative because Governor DeSantis has recently the the state legislature uh, was so concerned about him vetoing their electoral map. They just let him write, draw it himself. And he also passed new uh, a new policy creating uh, like election police. So none of that sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> unless you love fascism, that doesn't sound good. Oh, securing our elections is not fascism. I mean, that's going to be the defense. Um, but it's right. That is it, the defense. But yeah, but it's not a problem. It's like, I mean, that's what kind of cracks me up is some of the the people that say, well, we want freedom and liberty, seem to be the first ones to suggest having a police force for laws that were not necessary. It's like the joke I make about um said it's not illegal to marry your cousin in West Virginia or something. I'm like, well, that's actually probably a pretty good sign. It means it never came up. <laughs> you know, like you only you only have a law if it came up that you needed it. Like uh, I think in Minnesota or something, there was like um, someone dug up um, a body of a lady and 
was inappropriate and they couldn't do they couldn't get the the person or people for the inappropriate actions but they could get them for grave robbery because the inappropriate actions there was no law against it and they're like oh well this is horrible and but who who in congress would be like you know what we need a law that says you can't do inappropriate things which is my euphemism with a corpse Right. And like, who's like, uh, because is this, it, why, why are why you, were you thinking, thinking about that? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Why, why, why is this coming up? And so yeah. if it is coming up, it, it's on someone's mind. And, uh, but yeah, like the whole voting thing and securing our votes, it's, you know, it sounds nice. Who can be against that? But has it really been an issue? So I have to wonder why are you creating a police force for that? Back yeah, to and what exactly are they going to do? What you know, I don't understand what their role is exactly. I don't know. Maybe check IDs. Um, get a get a little bit. Get some overtime. Maybe their police officers they get some overtime. Which I mean, that may be nice. I mean, they they probably stand need around in body armor, intimidating yeah. voters. Well, that and, that might be a fear. That might be the indirect. Yeah, actually, yeah. So if you have somebody that you know. Um, uh, smoke a little weed and then they want to go vote or something, you know, like, oh, I don't want to be there. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And, and my person, thing you know. with the the claims of election fraud um, and, you know, amongst the, the far right conservatives, it's widely believed. And my thing is, if you believe that our elections are not secure, that they are uh, open to being manipulated what makes you think that your side can't do it? <laughs> right. And what, well, that's and why they you, want to secure them. That's why they want to it, what, <laughs> And are you so naive to think that if it's possible to manipulate elections, that your side wouldn't do it? <laughs> that's, that's the height of naivete, for, you know, as far as I can think, especially given Trump's reputation and, you know, the GOP's reputation of using dirty tricks and the ends justify the means. Well, that, well that, that one of the, it reminded me of something that cracks me up being from the South is, um, you know, the nineties, all those like Democrats became Republicans. So the political attitude from, I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of broad, but from the Democrats have always been kind of a big tent party with a, a variety of ideas, but people that we would today classify as Republicans were, Many of them would be like Dixiecrats or kind of a Democrat type. And they like these are the same guys that were, you know, like the old Dixiecrats were rigging elections and were corrupt. And then they all joined the Republican Party in the 90s. And you'll have people. They were alive then. That's what gets me is like it's not like they're young people that weren't alive that could read. Oh, the Democrats used to rig elections like that was just. That was just how you did it. That's how it was done, you know, in the in the deep south. You, you rigged elections if you could get away with it. You, you know, the whole dead voting or whatever back in the in in the day. But it's literally the same people that joined the Republican Party. And like, oh, those Democrats, you can't trust them. They rigged elections. It's like, yeah, in like the fifties, but those guys are all in the Republican Party now. Yeah, like, we're not talking about like mafia members going around and stuffing ballots, you know. I don't, I don't know. 
Oh, but yeah, the thing I was worried about, legitimacy. Legitimacy is important for democracy to function. And so attacking the legitimacy of the elections is a way to get um, people to you know, kind of want a strong person to, to settle things and, and make things right again. But I, where I'm worried about the, the potential for violence is like people's, the, the system being very legal but uh, seen as illegitimate. Like if, if you have 50% you know, of the population voting for one party, but never winning a majority in the House and Senate or having any of their agenda passed, at some point, that's going to bubble over. And a lot of times when states collapse, it's because they reach gridlock. They're facing competition economically, militarily from another nation, and they cannot compete because they're too, there's too much internal gridlock. And that's why I'm very worried about about 2030-ish. Um, well, I worry about up. even, I worry about sooner because even as soon as, you know, this year's elections, because if... Uh, the impression that I get is if the Republicans don't have the elections go the way that they want them to, they won't accept them. And I think that that could, that could kick off violence, you know, as soon as this year, if not this year, then almost certainly in 2024. Uh, I don't know how far that violence would spread. I don't know if it would, you know, end up, you know, becoming uh, an all-out civil war. But at this point, it seems like people, like for years now, and I've talked to a lot of conservative friends like in Southern states and Arkansas and whatnot, who talk about, you know, like they've got groups of friends sitting on, you know, they collect guns, like giant guns, big guns, and as many guns and as they can. And they're just like, part of it is that they're just sitting on them and itching to use them. Well, some of that, some of that's fantasy. You well, know, that like, I know, but I, yeah. I, that feels like an, uh, like, not like that, that alone would prompt them to, to start violence just on its own. Yeah. But if they feel like there's a legitimate reason to become violent, they won't have any qualms about it. I guess well, that's what I'm saying. Well, we also came from that County that like, massacred a whole bunch of black people for like wanting to start a union or something, you know? Yeah, like, that's true. Was it red summer? Maybe, maybe, maybe there's a historical reason for you to be worried about that. Oh, yeah. uh, anyway. I North, there's something about North Korea, right? Yeah. I was going to, we're, we're going to, uh, we're going to circle back to election issues here in a bit, but we'll move on now to the Korea's, uh, South Korean military officials say that North Korea fired a ballistic missile from a submarine off of its coast on Saturday, May 7th. The, this missile test comes a few days before the inauguration of South Korea's newly elected president, Yoon Suk-yeol, who will meet with President Biden later this month. Many say that the new South Korean president's election signals a coming shift in South Korea's stance towards its northern neighbor from the diplomat. The election of Jung Suk-yeol, 
the candidate of the conservative People Power Party in South Korea's presidential election on March 9th, was an explicit signal for countries involved in regional issues in East Asia that Seoul's policy will shift. Under Yoon, South Korea is expected to move further toward the U.S. while defining North Korea as a major adversary. Yoon pledged during his campaign that his administration will strengthen the South Korea-U.S. military alliance by invigorating joint military drills and employing additional THAAD, that's uh, Terminal High Altitude Area Defense Anti-Missile Launchers, uh, end, end quote. Yoon has said if elected, he would allow for the possibility of preemptive strikes against North Korea if he feels that an attack from them is imminent. So, and I guess the previous South Korean president was trying to move more toward diplomacy with the North. And yeah, I think it was move. Yeah, that, I mean, they, they go back and forth because um, right. I'm sure they do. Yeah, I mean, well, North Koreans are master negotiators. They just get you frustrated and they hold out the promise of doing something and then don't. And, um, but so, yeah, they'll get a group that's like, well, let's be nice to the North Koreans. And then North Koreans inevitably take advantage of that and nothing gets accomplished. And then you'll get, you know, the more uh, hawkish and like, oh, no, let's, you know, buck up. And then nothing gets accomplished and people get frustrated and like, well, let's try being nice again. <laughs> and it just keeps going <laughs> back and forth. And uh, at the end of the day, it's not much accomplished north korea over time not doing anything and truly truly effective um they managed to get some nuclear weapons um good on them considering how poor they they the nation is you know if they wanted they they had a mission and they accomplished it um got a bunch of people starving and you know living on a very meager existence but you know what they got a nuclear uh, missile or two or three or four um, right uh, I don't think, I mean, you never know what a crazy person will do, um, especially if they're getting to the point they're about to die and uh, they're worried about their legacy. But as long as they're a rational actor, like if, if Kim Jong-un is a rational actor, he, he wouldn't fire those weapons unless he truly believed uh, the, the country was about to collapse. I mean, that, that is, is kind of like his hostage card, you know, like... Uh, uh, if you invade, I'm going to launch this missile, and I don't see them using it. Otherwise, I don't even. I, I used to worry about them possibly selling one to a terrorist group or underground, but like th- enabling some yeah, other forces. I think they know that it would get traced back to them, and then that would be the end. And right, uh, and then there's the issue of uh, Kim Jong Un's sister, uh, Kim Yo Jong that you know she's been gaining status and from what i hear of course i don't know it's hard to tell but she's even more like hawkish than he is well you uh, i would imagine she would have to be because it's a very um paternalistic society so you know it's like catherine the great or something some of these you know empresses right. and elizabeth you know and you have you know a tradition of a, a male leader to be a female leader you have to be a very strong personality. You have to emulate <laughs> and then even maybe surpass those yeah. standards that men are held up to. Yeah. Um, yeah, it makes me, it also kind of makes me uh, feel grateful that our northern neighbor is Canada. Is, <laughs> uh, you know, they're known as like some of the most polite people in the world. So we don't have to worry about them saber rattling toward us or anything. 
um they're always just like hi how you doing <laughs> well the, the english uh, the english speaking ones were much um, a loyalist they were the people that thought war was a bad idea and that negotiation and patience was best so <laughs> there you go it's our neighbors to the north they're people that thought negotiation and patience are the best yeah um all right and now moving to yemen uh, at least a dozen people are dead in a southern in southern Yemen after a skirmish between Saudi-led security forces and militants at a militia facility Friday, May 6th. From NBC News, quote, the militia reported that Colonel Walid al-Dami, deputy commander of the security belt, and Colonel Mohammed al-Shubagi, commander of the government's counterterrorism division, I'm sorry, counterterrorism unit in Dali were killed. It did not offer further details. Uh, NBC News goes on to say, the security officials said that the nearly hour-long firefight erupted when troops asked the militants to hand over their weapons. The militants refused and opened fire at the troops, according to the officials, who spoke on condition of anonymity because they were not authorized to brief reporters. So it sounds like this was in southern Yemen and there were some uh mil, mil, there was like a militia there that the saudi led security forces had reason to believe were connected to al qaeda and so they went in to take their guns and the militants said uh you could have our bullets and so but that was not between uh saudi coalition forces and houthis i guess it's important to note these were security forces and militants so uh just like a little extra dash of violence in the area oh no I mean, uh, and then uh, uh on a, a brighter note um saudi-led forces are uh, uh also on friday the saudi-led coalition announced that it has released the 163 houthi prisoners of war as was promised last month from France 24, quote, Saudi state media footage purported to show released prisoners in white robes and holding white roses aboard an ICRC aircraft and then disembarking in Aden. Their identities could not be independently verified. Senior rebel official Muhammad Al Ali Al Houthi said on Twitter that there would be clarification later concerning the 163 prisoners who were released and called on Saudi Arabia to free all Yemeni prisoners. Um, so at least it sounds like Saudi Arabia is saying they released the prisoners they promised. Um, and oh, it's a step Houthi, in a peace direction. Yeah, it's not bad news. So, uh, however, um, meanwhile, as the temporary ceasefire continues to hold, Roads into the Yemen city of Taiz, I think I'm saying that right, Taiz, remain blocked, effectively keeping the city of around 600,000 people under siege. From Yahoo News, quote, Those roads remain closed, meaning truck drivers and ordinary civilians have no choice but to seek out dangerous alternative routes prone to accidents and seemingly endless traffic jams. In normal times, one such road, known as Al-Akrod, I think I'm saying that right. That's Al-Akrod should allow drivers to reach the village of Al-Haben east of Taiz in just 15 minutes. But now the trip can take up to eight hours. So ceasefire, but still a de facto blockade, at least 
for a lot of people there. Um, so well, I think Ramadan's over, so <laughs> they they the the truces may be coming to an end. But what was that? I think they said it was a three month truce. So they're two. I think two it's two months. months. Yeah. So it's supposed to hold out at least through this month. Um, I don't know what that means. If that means that at the end of the the ceasefire, people are just going to start shooting at each other again. I guess I'm not sure how that typically. <sighs> right. Someone blows a whistle. Okay, ceasefire's over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I almost picture it as like a, a cartoon, you know, where like the soldiers are sitting on each side, like smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee, and then somebody like pulls a chain on a steam whistle, and they're like, ah, jump up and start shooting at each other again. I don't know. Uh, hopefully that doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah. Oh, now I'm thinking of the Christmas truce and how they uh, had trouble getting the people to start shooting each other again. Like, we don't yeah. want to shoot each other. Yeah, the Christmas truce story, it makes it, I don't know, in in a weird way, it almost sort of makes the violence afterward worse. <laughs> right. Maybe. I mean, not to say that it's a bad thing that that had happened. Uh, I'm sure it was a very welcome change for the the grunts on the ground in the trenches there. But But yeah, to have to, like, end that and go back to shooting each other yeah it is as i was going to say that uh, a lot of times the people don't want to to fight and in that case it really was a largely useless war um you know like yeah of course if you were french the the germans were there you know so you have a a lot more motivation to be fighting so it's like you know whoever's in your country but as far as the geopolitics of it it was largely largely senseless a lot of different groups being unreasonable. Yeah, and the 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 history behind how that started um, is, I don't know. I thought it was really interesting. You know, this, that World War One marked sort of the end of the idea of war as being this gloriful, this glorious thing that you rode into battle on a horse and came back home with some medals and, you know extra glory i I don't know if that ever went away the horse did but right well i just i don't know in a way i've heard it been marked i've heard it marked as this i guess almost like an end of innocence i mean war isn't innocent in any way but you know it was like the brutality of it was that's nostalgia that's nostalgia. In my day, we didn't have machine guns. We yeah. killed each other with single shot rifles and, yeah, and we, knives. We got bayoneted with um, and sepsis and right. <laughs> yeah, uh, we starved to death and we didn't have uh, mustard gas in my day. Uh, entire divisions and full with syphilis raped everyone in the village, and then we all uh, then everyone's faces started falling off twenty years later. But we, yeah. we were we were close. It bonded. You. Yeah. Like, come on. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Um, all right. I mentioned before uh, that we were going to mention elections again. So this is uh, news from Guinea in Africa. Uh, Guinea's former president, Alpha Conde, now faces legal charges after being ousted from office by a military coup last September. From Reuters, quote, 
The charges against Conde and his allies include complicity in murder and assault, sexual violence, and forced disappearances arising from civil unrest that broke out around the disputed election, according to a document signed by the Attorney General, end quote. So in 2020, Conde altered the country's constitution, allowing himself to run for a third term as president. The move was met with outrage and widespread protests. Amnesty International reported that close to 70 protesters were killed and hundreds injured by Guinea police during the protests uh, and after the election. Uh, the Attorney General's order also states that charges will be brought against protest organizers and those who destroyed buildings. Uh, meanwhile, Junta leader Colonel Mamade uh, Dumbuya says it could take at least three years to transition power back to elected officials. And so this marks like a trend in the area lately of coups happening, yeah, where they're calling yeah, the coup belt. Yeah, Sudan and uh, Burkina Faso. <laughs> yeah, it's like the coup belt. Oh, man, that's that's. That's not a good belt to be in. That's my least no. favorite belt. I can feel like <laughs> if you're an, you know, just the average citizen there, that's, I can't, I already suffer from anxiety. I couldn't imagine the kind of anxiety that those people have to live with. Well, when I was in Bedeen, we thought there was going to be a coup. Uh, and um, that was kind of a, uh, a funny story. Why we had uh, couch surfers come through. Uh, I think we were like uh, the couch surfing and, uh, biker like bicyclists that went went through Africa were kind of well known. It was like a rite of passage to stay at the Gibbons house. But um, hmm. there was a, a couple that had gotten. They were British and and I mean I think that's where their passports were and got a job in Kenya and they bought like a really nice I think I think it was like a Toyota Four Runner or something four wheel drive and they were just going to drive it all the way to Kenya and. They said, okay, well, you need to stay in your place for like two days and get our visa for Nigeria or whatever. And um, we told them, like, uh, there's some problems with the elections, you know, like uh, the the president has kind of made it so that opposition party members can't really run and people are pretty upset about it. And there are likely to be some protests. And if it gets out of hand, the military might step in. So you probably want to wait a week before you show up. And I mean, they, there was a machine. They, they kind of were expecting it. There was a machine gun nest like right at the corner of my house. And you know, every time you know, I, I went to the store and I'd get a coke and give to them. <laughs> you know, if it, you know if it goes it's down. Like, I want to make sure. I can't remember good. who it was, but there was a comedian years ago who said that uh, there was one guy at his office that he was worried would come in and shoot the office up, and so every day he gave that guy a candy bar. <laughs> well, we found out that two, like two houses down from us, or maybe it was the next one, was um, a government building where they were counting the votes. Because I was curious why there was the machine gun nest at our corner, and um, but it wasn't. Uh, but we were in you know kind of the upper class neighborhood where like you know the ambassadors lived in that neighborhood and stuff and. So I thought that's what it was about, but our UN workers and stuff. But they were like, no, no, there's an election thing down there. I'm like, oh. But anyway, that, that couple was staying with us, and they went to drive to the store and ended up getting swamped um, by a riot. And they managed to get back, you know, drive back. And they saw a taxi on fire, and 
you know, were really scared and, you know, they, they came in and then we heard gunshots and, you know, the, they were like, uh, yeah, we probably should have listened to you. And I was like, ah, you know, don't worry about it. We got high walls and soldiers like us. And yeah, so it turned out, it turned out okay. Well, I mean, not for the people that died, um, but yeah, there were some civilians who, who ended up getting killed. Um, but it seems to be back stable. I mean, after 72 hours outside of a, the buildings that were burned down, it was like it never happened. And everywhere, everywhere we had, everywhere we go, there's civil unrest. Yeah, that's. I want to say that's a coincidence, but it may also just be a sign of the times. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's well, why I try to stay out of the U.S. during election season because I don't. <laughs> I don't want to be part of that. <laughs> oh, I don't want to accidentally be connected to the to, to that revolution. That, that would be that'd be bad. I'm feeling a little itchy about living in the capital of Florida during elections. Um, uh, we'll, we'll, especially with the DeSantis's new police force. Well, well what I would be worried, uh, worried about, I don't know, maybe that police force could be good, um, but I don't know that it would be nonpartisan because the thing, you know, actually maybe, maybe this is where it might be good. If I wanted to, um, Throw an election into doubt, create confusion, and probably instigate um, a revolution. Uh, of course, you know, repeating and spreading things about the elections being illegitimate. You got, you know, that the check. That's you know, well, discrediting democracy one hundred and one. Um, I would um, in swing states make sure that a bunch of um, ballots got destroyed. Uh, you know, go into election offices and you know make the election be in doubt. So that, I don't think that Florida would allow any ballots to be destroyed, though. <laughs> uh, well, that makes me think of like you know the workplace accident sign. You know, <laughs> there hasn't been a workplace accident in ninety days uh, in Florida. Yeah, you know, oh, there I hasn't been uh, uh, destroyed ballots in the country for a hundred years. Like, oh, you got to, you know, I mean, it, it, it have to be, gotta, yeah, it had to be more than a box. I mean, like. Uh, a precinct, like a precinct, right, uh, right, having everything destroyed in it, and you know, so you know, the, a militia or something that was in, interested in creating such a, a thing, you know, could go in and like there was some little group acting independently that was trying to put in a bunch of fake, um, fake ballots in Phil Philadelphia or Pittsburgh, somewhere in Pennsylvania. And I mean, that's an idea too, because it's like, oh, well, here we go, a false flag, yeah, yeah. Thing. Yeah, but it's it it's easy to disprove, but not easy to disprove. Because like the people counting the votes will be like, oh yeah, we we okay, we forgot this figured out. But it'll keep getting repeated over and over again. Oh, look, right. look at these fake ballots! Exactly. Look at these fake ballots! Oh, it's illegitimate. But um, actually creating a problem that can't be legally answered, like you know, ten twenty thousand ballots disappearing or being burned up. And having a deadline to finish the election. Uh, and one thing with the, the Constitution does not say how the electors are chosen. And which, you know, when people talk about the, our electoral system and, you know, how it's meant to balance the power of the states. Originally, like the states, the electors they picked, it might be like the governor or the speaker of the house or something. They were supposed to be wise, educated people who would go and pick the president and take into consideration the votes of their state 
but the needs of their state. And now most states just make it a party-based system, winner take all. These parties didn't exist during, you know, <laughs> early on. George Washington didn't want them to exist. Uh, so, you know, it's if the if the states went back to like some sort of perhaps original intent for the electors, it would not be democratic. But oddly enough, it might be better. <laughs> because, like, you could say, okay, you're elected, like, a, a, what is what is that? Um, or like, if, if a president dies and it's the vice president and that they die, the Senate pro tem or something, or Speaker of the House, what's, what's that called? Uh, um, uh, all I can think of is chain of command, succession. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Order of su succession, not the yeah, not succession. <laughs> and do it like, a list that's kind of like that, perhaps those should be the electors, like the governor, the lieutenant governor, the speaker of the house, the speaker of the Of course, you know, then it'll end up, but make it so that it's representative of the people in the state. So, uh, yeah, was it the minority leader, whatever the political party minority leader is? And of course, you know, a state that only gets three electors, that might be problematic, but you know, I guess with that one, you could do like, the governor and then the majority leader in, in their house and the, the minority leader and, or something, depending on how many votes they got. But I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it is worrisome that something like that could happen. And yeah. And I'm not so much worried here in the Capitol about uh, violence breaking out as I am worried about the governor turning it into a really uh, hardcore police state you know I I feel like worst case scenario like where I am isn't so much that the city you know like that the area breaks down and the state leaves uh, and lets it turn into chaos so much as I'm worried about like nighttime raids on citizens houses and you know black bag I mean, and that's like far fetched. That's yeah, your worst case scenario. You're, you're beginning. You're but, beginning to sound like a conspiracy guy, <laughs> you know, or there. I'm I just mean, saying, if that, I'm. That's like what I'm picture as worst case scenario here. I don't know how. I don't think that that doesn't feel likely, but I feel like that's the worst case scenario as opposed to, you know, like gun battles in the streets. Yeah. Does that make sense? Uh, I just I really mean, don't, you know, don't see how a how a governor would legitimize that to that extreme. Well, he has made it legal for people to run protesters down in their cars. So, oh, oh yeah, blocking traffic. Oh, that reminds me. I I'm, I got to be careful not to be too close to identifying. But spoke to a person who is like, um, no matter what China does, always defend China. A person of Chinese descent, and. Um, was asking about the Tiananmen Square and like, you know, was that justified? And we'll say, yes, they were blocking traffic. If they didn't block traffic, they wouldn't have been run over like that. <laughs> you know, the people that were killed or whatever. It was like, oh, they were killed because they were blocking traffic. <laughs> and it's like, and oh. in front of a tank, you get squashed by the tank. It's not the tank's fault. <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, well, that, that, that iconic picture, I don't think we know who that guy was and, or if he, he was killed. But yeah, there were, there were a lot of people run over by tanks. Yeah. Right, because people uh, will say, "Oh, tank guy," 
that sole guy with the grocery bags, he was escorted off to the side and he wasn't run over by tanks. And that's, yeah, but he, nobody still, no one knows who he was. And so no one knows what happened to him afterward. Yeah. Off camera. Then, <laughs> right. But at the same time, uh, there were, you know, from reports, hundreds of students who were run over by tanks and then hosed, you know, like their guts hosed into the sewers, you know. I keep hearing or reading the term pie filling that they yeah, were turned yeah, to they call pie, it pie filling. filling. Yeah, it's like, ah, oh, well, you know, they, they, they shouldn't have been shouldn't have been blocking away, which, you know, is also completely false because a lot of them were trying to leave and were blocked in. And, um, so they're like, ah, oh, we're not going to talk about that. But, they, you know, they, they'll just, you know, reinvent the narrative as they want, which is incredibly familiar. But yeah, right. they were like, terrorists. They, you know. <laughs> Yeah, they were standing in the way of, um, yeah, the normal, uh, the will of the people, and yeah, okay, whatever. Uh, well, it's time, time to move on, cause <laughs> yeah, you've let your values be known. Right. Speaking of values, we can move into Russia now. I don't know. That's kind of weak. That's an okay transition. I'm gonna stand by it. Uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin apologized to Israel on Thursday, May fifth. For comments made by Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, that fucking guy, <laughs> he is like, you know, if there wasn't so much violence attached to his rhetoric, he would be like a, a funny character. But the violence kind of takes the laugh out of it. In an Italian television interview, Lavrov defended Moscow's claims of denazifying Ukraine, despite Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky being Jewish and having family who suffered through the Holocaust. Lavrov said in the interview, quote, when they say, what sort of Nazification is this if we are Jews? Well, I think that Hitler also had Jewish origins, so it means nothing. For a long time now, we've been hearing the wise Jewish people say that the biggest anti-Semites are the Jews themselves. So, yeah, Israeli officials did not take kindly to that. <laughs> Russia has struggled to maintain its relationship with Israel in the face of widespread global condemnation for its invasion into Ukraine. So, uh, and then this comes as a Jewish history student on Twitter claims that Russia is now conducting a census on its Jewish population. Uh, a person going by the Twitter handle of JH underscore Swanson uh, tweeted an image of a document along with the comment, quote, Russia is asking local officials to provide statistical data on Jews living in various parts of the country. I can't imagine how this could end badly. <laughs> yeah, we can post that. I've got, I downloaded the picture, so I can, I'll post that on the Facebook in a little bit. Um, and I've read it posted by, let's see, I think her name is Alexandra Zaprudor. And she's a pretty, she, uh, she helped organize and create the Holocaust Museum. So she's uh, she's very reputable, and she's um, cited it too. So it might have some some credence. Yeah. But, uh, and this is uh, interesting. How often do we see Putin apologize for anything? Um, he had to do some quick shuffling to keep well, things. There are a bunch of Israeli-made drones they have, and I bet that was, I bet if the Israelis wanted to, they could shut them off. Or shut off the software, just uh, right, or, or just take control of them remotely. Something really funny like that. Um, that would be because I think uh, Ukraine has some too, 
and they were asking Israel to disable the Russian ones. And their answer was essentially, well, if, uh, the company was something like, we, we, we could do that, but we have to disable yours too. Or we'll disable all of them. It's kind of an all or nothing situation. And um, so trying not to pick a side. Right. It's yeah. That's probably. I'm imagining that's an excuse. Uh, you know, because there is there are deep ties with Russian oligarchs and their money in Israel. So Israel's trying to like. I think they're trying to like walk a fine line. Um, to try yeah. to maintain mm -hmm. relations with the West and with Russia at the same time. Yeah, I find it. I find it very disappointing. Um. Especially considering, like, the the nature of the things that are happening to the Ukrainians, I mean, indiscriminate bombing, but also being forced to evacuate, many of them, you know, there seems the majority, being forced to evacuate, uh, when, when in Russian, ter uh, Russian controlled territory, being forced to evacuate to Russia. And, you know, that seems to be part of their repopulation plan, assimilation, and... You know, it's like what the, you know, the Nazis kind of did with some of the Poles, not not all of them. Um, they kill, I mean, a bunch were killed, a bunch were left alone to live, and then some of the, like the, the children, they tried to like, oh, we're going to try to assimilate you. And it just seems like that's what the Russians are doing. It's like, oh, we're going to have, you know, a bunch of people die in Ukraine. No worries. They're ethnic minorities and, and poor people, and we can just get a bunch of Ukrainians to replace them. And I know Russia's multi-ethnic, and they do have this sort of, um, you know, okay, well, being Russian, it's all about, you know, your passport. But there seems to be, especially with um, Putin, a, um, uh, a Slavic undertone, like they're just infuriated that a Slavic group could like, not be pan-Slavic. You know, like how dare the Ukrainians have their own identity? All right, we will take their children and their population and force them to assimilate. And was it, well, Putin, he called the Soviet Union the affirmative action empire because they at least had a large, uh, some level of respect for ethnic cultures within their borders. But, you know, they were kind of, Stalin was very schizophrenic about that too. It was like, oh, we must respect, you know, the Kazakh culture, but no, now we're going to kill you because you have farms. And Jewish, Jewish identity is great until you have a national identity. Now we're going to kill you all. I'm like, ah! So, but eh, that's the thing about this sort of the fascist mentality is logic and consistency doesn't matter. You can make up whatever you want, whenever you want. Right. And also the, you know, it, Israel's, you know, trying to provide weapons to both sides reminds me of, I can't think of his name now, but the, I think he was an Austrian uh, guy who invented like the biggest cannons that were around and the biggest artillery right before world war one. And so he was, was he Austrian or Prussian? I can't remember, uh, but maybe Krupp. I think that was Rhine, but he was, he was selling weapons to all the sides and the leader of his country was like, Hey, could you not do that? You just sell them to us. Cause you're, from here and he was like i can't take sides <laughs> There's money sides have. have money yeah uh, only side i see is gold right <laughs> so, yeah uh -huh. maybe that was croup uh, uh, i can't remember um uh, yeah, he, i think he would have been 
German... Ah, anywho, we'll go yeah. down a rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, meanwhile, Russian officials complain that U.S. aid to Ukraine has lengthened the ongoing conflict. Newsweek reports, quote, While speaking to reporters, Kremlin spokesman, spokesperson Dmitry Peskov said that Western intelligence and ongoing delivery of weapons to Ukraine, quote, do not contribute to the quick completion of the Russian operation, but at the same time are not capable of hindering the achievement of the goals set, uh, Reuters reported. Our military is well aware that the United States, Britain, and NATO as a whole are constantly transmitting intelligence and other parameters to the Ukrainian armed forces, Peskov added, according to Reuters, end quote. So, <laughs> I mean, they're playing that, like, double-sided story again. Um, <laughs> you're, yeah. this, these things are making are giving us trouble so we can't finish up, but they're, they also don't make a difference. Right. Well, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're saying, yeah, I, I kind of understand what they're saying, but they've, they've also they're, modified their goals because if their goal is to hold the land bridge, which I think they wanted more than that. Um, I mean, but at the, at the same time, I also think they're, they're going to have to become more realistic that the only ch uh, chance they have is to dig in where they're at and hold it. And then in time, the West may lose interest. In which case, this would be a completely true statement. If the, if the West never helped Ukraine, uh, eventually Ukraine would, would just simply have, I, I can't, I can't see, I, I don't want to say they would, would lose, but I can't see how they could win over time. I mean, Right. Actually, so he's just yeah. saying that our help is prolonging the inevitable. Yeah. Like their, their, their goal now perhaps is to just hold the South and we will hold it. And eventually the West will get tired and you're going to have to go to make a peace treaty with us anyway. But uh, I don't think that part's actually true. I think in time, the Russians will lose if the West keeps supplying weapons. Um, and I don't know that the West is going to lose interest in this. I think that it's more likely the, the Russians will run out of uh, money, and you know, the, over time, the economy is going to start getting worse and worse. And uh, uh, there's already a lot of internal agitation in Russia, and so I, I don't, I don't know that they can hold out long enough for the U.S. and the Ukrainians to to give up. And, and the Ukrainians have even kind of come out and said that. Offering territory for peace talks is not really, it's not on the table. And they're not being bullied into that by the West. The West is not saying, hey, well, you need to be open to giving up something. It's like, no, right. no, no. And how much, relatively speaking, how much is the West's support of Ukraine costing them? It, it feels, it seems like it's a relatively low cost as opposed to, you know, direct military intervention. I mean, I understand it's not cheap. But when you think about like the U.S. defense budget in general, yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, it's like we, a, it's, and if you know, if what the what Russian officials say is true that the West is trying to break Russia, then why wouldn't they take this opportunity to you know to just funnel a little bit of money and resources to the Ukraine, and then they don't have to do anything else? Well, that's essentially what uh, I think Zelensky has said is we'll provide the soldiers if you provide the weapons. And so that's our arrangement with the West. We will defeat Russia for you. You just make sure that we've got the, the weapons to do it. 
<laughs> and it's right. like, oh, all right. Well, because like, can Russia keep up militarily with all of the West? Yeah, that's what I highly doubt. And that's where things get worried about. Oh, well, what if China enters it? But I don't think they I think they've realized that that's a losing that's a losing game, too. Right, because there's not a lot. There wouldn't be a lot for them to gain in that situation, especially mm -hmm. if they've got their own intentions toward Taiwan. You know, yeah. although I think that they're like people talk about China has been watching this closely to you know to gauge their intention and what they're going to do about Taiwan, and it seems like and uh, Burns from the CIA has said this too that uh, it doesn't mean that they're not going to attempt to take Taiwan eventually. It just means that they're going to learn. This might actually even help them, you know, learn uh, how to prevent and uh, safeguard themselves against sanctions and have a better idea of what the West's military response might be. Oh, and what the Taiwanese will be capable of, you know, right. and all the, yeah, there's, I'm, I'm sure they're taking notes. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and well, I, I'll say, uh, I'm thinking of uh, Syria. The Russians are also kind of making the same argument uh, here about uh, with Syria. If nobody intervened in Syria, Assad probably would have finished that war within a year or two. But everybody, you know, was going in and sending weapons and turned Syria into a battleground. And I think some people uh, question our helping of Ukraine for the same reasons. Like, well, aren't we just turning Ukraine into a battleground for a proxy war? And it's like, well, yep, we are. But the we have some very clear sides here, and Ukraine is inviting this help. And Syria was kind of, it's, it still is, a war of the all against the all. So it's kind of hard. <laughs> They're very different situations. Like, right. Yeah, like I, I don't know how much like, I lean against intervention in Syria, uh, or at least in the past I did, because who were the good guys? It was so hard to find a group that was the good guys, and the closest we had to a good guys, uh, which would be the the Kurds, made the Turks very angry, and it's like exchanging another problem for the other. And the other question is, are you going to make it worse? And I didn't, I didn't know if our intervention would make, I suspected that intervention might make it worse, but I don't know, like our intervention in Ukraine, I don't know that it's making it worse. In fact, I think it's making it better. It's like, right. Because it, the other it, question of that is making it worse for whom? Right. <laughs> yeah, it's like, is it just leading to more death and destruction? And, and it's like, if we didn't intervene, uh, the Russia might still be hanging around Kiev. Kiev might still be bombarded and the Russians making the slow gain and more and more cities getting destroyed along the way and the Ukrainians not giving up. And just so many more, what are they, like over 20,000 people, civilians in Mariupol? You know, it's, it's horrible. And that spread across the whole country, at least now it's kind of, you know, there's a, the trench lines. So right. we could say, oh, well, we've contained this invasion or helped contain the invasion with the, the bravery of the Ukrainian people. Yeah. And then um, so at the same time, the Pentagon says that. While it is providing uh, intelligence to Ukrainian forces, 
it has not aided in the killing of a number of Russian generals. Uh, Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby said, quote, the United States provides battlefield intelligence to help Ukraine defend their country. We do not provide intelligence on the location of senior military leaders on the battlefield or participate in targeting decisions of the Ukrainian military. So, and I believe the New York Times ran a story on that recently saying that the U.S. has helped the Ukrainian military find Russian generals because Russia has lost an unusually high number of generals and high-ranking officers during what it continues to downplay as a mere special military operation. So their little <laughs> special military operation has seen what like seven or eight of their generals get killed in action, which is weird, right? You don't normally see that. Right. Yeah, yeah. And well, that has they don't have the NCO Corps or lower officers. You know, those aren't very trained. They're trained very well. And so and the it shows also how much the leadership doesn't trust. Like they have to show up to make people do stuff. You know, right. That's one of the things I've read was that they speculate that they were having to send generals to the front lines just to keep up morale, which could also possibly be translated as to they had to go to the front lines to force people to fight. Yeah, I think that would be a more accurate translation of that. Right. (laughs) It's like, oh, I got the order. Yeah, I totally, totally tried to take that city. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We totally (laughs) didn't dismantle these tanks ourselves. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Meanwhile, they're hiding like the spark plugs for the tanks behind their back. Yeah, I was like, uh, Ukraine now has more tanks than when the war began, and it's not because of like not counting the the ones that have been sent to them from the West. Right, that calls to mind those early images from the war of you know people uh, towing tanks with their tractors and trucks. (laughs) And the Craigslist ads were tank for sale. Yeah. Well, as Zelensky said, we're not going to uh, make people make our people pay taxes on it because obviously it's something they're not worth very much. Whoa, that's a burn. Oh man, he's uh, he's good with the zingers. Yeah, I don't so, know if he uh, actually said this one, but um, it says he's. Uh, the Ukrainians will not bomb Russia because it already looks bombed. Ouch. <laughs> it's like, oh. Um, so this, uh, this uh, discussion of intelligence reports about the generals, uh, this comes after confirmations of reports that a U.S. Boeing P-8 Poseidon spy plane likely helped Ukrainian forces strike and sink the Russian ship Moskva back in April. So, and I saw reports on of, about this on Reddit from people who uh, track aircraft. You know, they're like whole, they're like communities dedicated to tracking the location of, especially military aircraft, uh, because a lot of that information is open source. You can, you know, and they made notes of okay, the Moskva was here when it was struck by missiles. And then we had this U.S. Uh, Poseidon, which is known to be like a very advanced spy plane, was it was like flying in this area, and then its transponder went dark uh, right at the border of you know like the military activity air, airspace. Uh, transponder went dark here, and then after a couple of hours, the transponder came back on here, and then 
It flew around for about 20 minutes and then the transponder went dark again. And given the capabilities of the ship or of that aircraft in and its surveillance capabilities, it seems very likely that they would have known exactly where Moscow was. And it's very likely that they would have told Ukrainian forces that information. So, and now it's being, you know, like officials have confirmed, or at least all the, you know, through the open source intelligence, they've confirmed that it's very likely that the U.S. helped Ukrainians sink that ship. Um, and they'll, they'll do it again. Man, Putin, it's like Putin versus the internet right now. Uh, it's yeah, interesting. I'm surprised. I thought that the the Russian cyber attacks would be much more powerful than they were. That's that well, my fear. With, oh, no, the Russian hackers is going to be awful. Yeah, well, I mean, but, it plays like, into oh. that thing of, you know, everyone sort of uh, overestimating Russian uh, capabilities in general, which may be part of, you know, the West's villain, you know, vilification of Russia. I don't know. Um, you know, like playing them up as a threat to be scared of saying, oh, Russia's going to, you know, launch cyber attacks against U.S. Uh, energy infrastructure and whatnot. Well, you might um, not know this, but they did invade a couple of neighboring countries. <laughs> <laughs> as far as them playing them up as a threat, you might not oh, be aware well, of this. I, I didn't oh. mean as their their willingness to do things, but just their capabilities to carry oh. out those things. So, yeah, I don't know. They're they have. I mean, they've got. It's like so much equipment. They just keep throwing equipment, and I think that's their thought: is that if they just keep throwing equipment at it, and it'll it'll all work out for them. But, right, but it's like you need people who know how to work right. the equipment, and maybe soldiers who actually want to be there. Right, who want to work the equipment? Yeah. Right. Uh, uh, speaking of Russian uh, uh, presence, I don't know. Bad segues. Uh, Reuters is reporting that it's identified a Russian special forces unit. It says was present in the Ukrainian city of Buka as well as at least three Chechen military units. Russian forces withdrew from Bukha at the end of March, leaving behind signs of a brutal occupation, including mass graves of civilians. Among evidence IDing Russian troops were an ID card, a love letter written to one Russian soldier, and another soldier's Instagram handle spray-painted on the wall inside a civilian's home. Which, I, can, I can't... I would love to see Putin right now reacting to intelligence leaks via his own soldiers' social media. <laughs> I mean, Putin is old, old school, and I'm sure he sees social media as like an intelligence nightmare. I mean, you know, yeah. a, 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 it's a cornucopia of information, uh, you know, for one side, but on the counterintelligence side, it's a nightmare. And like, I couldn't imagine... Putin having an Instagram account himself, you know. So. Right. Someone could manage it. He, he likes to show those pictures of him on the horse and stuff, and you know, like right. But those are very, and... yeah, those are very well planned out. Oh, situations. Instagram, yeah, he could still have an Instagram manager. He probably has one. We just haven't looked. 
Right, but he's not taking pictures of himself eating brunch. Oh, no, no, no. no. (laughs) He's got, like, a person with security clearance who's, like, taking pictures and then stripping metadata, maybe falsifying metadata and uploading it to an official account. He's not tweeting from, uh, you know, the toilet. (laughs) Uh, I saw on one of the Ukraine intelligence um, telegram feeds that the, one of the, the Bucha units involved in massacring has been killed, like 90% or more. They were around Izium, were recently surrounded and um, destroyed. And the report says that the Ukrainians called the Russian command to say, hey, we have all these bodies here for you. And the reply was, bury them yourself. Right. Well, yeah, they're not. Yeah. Um, in Ukraine, uh, some good news as Ukrainian Ukrainian officials report that the besieged city of Maripol has been evacuated of its remaining women, children, and elderly. A small Ukrainian resistance continues to hold out in as uh, stall, a steel mill in the city. Russian bombardment has leveled the city of Maripol as Russian forces claim control of the region. Uh, even as residents of the city continue to attempt to flee. So Maripol has just been leveled, from what I understand. Yeah, it's, yeah, it'll have to be rebuilt from the ground up. But um, when this is over, they'll rebuild it bigger and better than ever. Yeah, with lots of Western uh, uh, construction companies, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure that will have, you know, it'll have a new aesthetic, but it'll also be an opportunity to uh, to rebuild some old architecture. Yeah, so I, I doubt they're going to just rebuild the old Soviet style buildings. They'll probably like, try to go back pre-Soviet, and, you know, bring yeah. back some of the, it'll be like a, a rebirth of Ukrainian cult, culture, uh, Ukrainian flowering, like uh, out of the I'm ashes. Glad sometimes the you're here to, I'm glad that you're here sometimes to counter my cynicism. <laughs> I, I try to do that myself, but you know. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, yeah. That, that's that's my hope for for the future. But right yeah. now, I mean, it's still awful. Well, it's it's, it's kind of hard sometimes to be optimistic in a sense because it can come across as flippant. You know, like oh, it's going to be fine. They're going to rebuild it later. But, right. Yeah, I mean, it's a really horrible situation. Whereas I'm sure, given a choice, the residents of Maripol would probably be fine settling with what they had. Right. Yeah. Uh, I hope they that the uh, wounded are allowed to leave. Some of those wounded, man, that, that's that's rough. Um, right. Uh, what's up there? I saw one video of guys like, I don't know why they haven't amputated his arm, uh, but it's, it's like broken half or leaned over, but they bandaged it up and his fingers are black. And, but maybe they're afraid that if they um, amputated, he'll lose too much blood and uh, right, it's uh, hard to say in that situation. Um, it's like, ah, uh, I mean, this guy's not a threat. Just come on, you know, allow allow an ambulance to take him out. And but they, I mean, they're they're one of the reasons that the Azov guys didn't surrender or haven't surrendered in in the past. And um, one, they've got that target on their heads for being Azov. And the other is uh, during the, it was 2014 sector segment of this war, I guess, um, before the, the uh, Russian military, official military, got in it, or there was a, uh, to be a prisoner, or 
Ukra captured Ukrainians were to walk free or you know cross the line, and they were gunned down. And so they'd be like, "Well, we can't we can't trust the Russians to not shoot us in the back, so we're just not going to surrender." And I mean, it's sad on many levels, but also it's like you know the Russians have shot themselves in the foot because had they not treated prisoners like that in the past, these guys might have surrendered earlier or evacuated instead of saying, no, we're going to go Alamo on you. Right. But, like how many, how many right, like Russians died that didn't need to, you know, trying to attack a heavily fortified facility with, that was designed to withstand a tactical nuclear strike. So, yeah. Right. Well, in Russian history, has that ever been much of a concern? Yeah, yeah, but I mean, they also had a lot more peasants that they could throw at things too, and now they're having a demographic crisis. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, usually uh, things get institutionalized, and logic and reason are are no match for tradition and institutionalization. Right. It reminds me of I learned about this German term uh, that has stuck with me called Einstellung. Are you familiar with that? I am not. Uh, so from what I understand, uh, it base, I don't know the direct translation, but it, it basically means um, it, when you're trying to solve a problem, and, but you're, you're stuck on an incorrect assumption that is blocking you solving the problem. Does that make sense? Right, right. You know, and so maybe they're just stuck on old methods and that's uh, keep throwing artillery fire and human bodies at it <laughs> right eventually the building itself will just crumble on top of them and then yeah. we can go well i think build. they were they were wanting to get them by may 9th because that's the big like victory day uh, i don't I, I doubt this video will go out by may 9th but uh, we might have some some incidents happen whether it's, uh, well, I mean, the media is suggesting Putin might declare general mobilization or call it a war. Um, other thoughts is organized attacks by the resistance in Russia. And that would be a big psychological thing. If, right. Uh, yeah, I've heard, I've heard mention of that. Yeah, because we're recording this on Sunday, May 8th right now. So that, uh, and then it'll come out on, you know, Tuesday the 10th. So well we're going to miss that, that day for the recording <laughs> if there are strikes it would likely be railroads that's what i think it would be um railroads um one one it's wishful thinking but um one is that the ukrainians themselves would take out that crimea bridge um which would really complicate russian supply efforts but that would be hard to pull off but if i was going to say are off, they in a position to do that uh, let the U.S. help, and enough money, anything is possible. <laughs> I'm not going to discount it, but I find it unlikely. Because um, uh, I, I think they probably would have already done it by now. But having said that, there's a psychological element to something like that happening on May 9th. So I would say if it's, so, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen tomorrow. <laughs> what's the significance of May 9th? Uh, it's a uh, like great patriotic victory day. Uh, it's like when the the end of World War II for the Russians. 
Okay, yeah. so it's it's sort of like July Fourth here in America. Yeah, yeah, Fourth kind of, of that, and Memorial Day mixed into one, and uh, so yeah, it's because it the, the Russian mythos, you know, like they won World War Two, and arguably uh, it, it might be fair to say that they they kind of had the same deal that the Ukrainians had, except the the U.S. and and England and France also. Well, France was occupied, but two soldiers in, but. I mean, millions of Russians died fighting uh, the Germans. Right, and, uh, and it's. I think it's fair to say, at least from what I understand, that Russia is largely responsible for the Allied victory over the Nazis. Yeah, like because they lost way more soldiers than the other Allied countries combined. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like maybe the U.S. and everyone else, maybe the U.S. and everyone else would have won, but. It would have you would have had a, a million to two million to three million fewer Americans, and so I think what was our casualties like one hundred thousand, two hundred thousand? Uh, yeah, like it would have been much more. And so, but yeah, I mean that, that and, and to Russia's defense, yeah, they they bled. Um, I mean, Lynn Lee's helped them out. You know, we gave them a lot of weapons and. And so, but anyway, they're they're very proud of it. They beat the you know, like, hey, we beat the Nazis, yay, we liberated Poland, oh yeah, liberated, yeah, liberated Romania, right. yay. But that's and, uh, that's compared to uh, you know around twenty million Russians who died. That's including soldiers and civilians during World War Two. So, yeah, and they're they're still having like a demographic issues from that because it's the that generation had a lot fewer children and. Then they had a little bit of a baby boom, but then after that, it's gone down for the, you know, I was like, oh. You're right. Because the Cold War, I'm sure, didn't help. Yeah. Well, they had also the issue with, um, uh, like, birth rates dropped in the same, for the same reasons they, they did in the West, in that women women could work, and women were getting educated, and women were having, you know, jobs and things outside the home, and they didn't necessarily have to get married. And there was, you know, some in cities, especially, you know, like daycare and public education or, you know, there were things to try to help families. And so people were kind of choosing to have fewer children in a, in a sense, or sometimes just not getting married or getting married later. Same things that we see today, you know, because of like, oh, well, I can get a job and I can be independent or I don't, you know, so um, doesn't mean everybody did that. There were still people that had lots of kids, but, you know. Right. And I'm sure at least nowadays, more people would be having children if it was financially viable. But right. Nowadays, a lot of people aren't having kids, at least here, because they can't afford it. They can barely afford rent, much less the thought of buying a home and raising a child. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a, yeah, it's a same thing. And, and, and Russia historically, uh, I mean, well, even now, you know, like now, especially right. like their birth rates incredibly low. Uh, they're doing things like giving people money to have kids, which is also one of the reasons they're saying that Putin has some popularity because he's like, we need more Russian babies. So here's, well, I don't know how much it is, like $100 a month or something. Here's $100 a month for every kid you got. And they're like, oh, yeah, Putin's great. Even he, he cares about the families. Right. Uh, and then uh, our final bit of news for the day. On Sunday, May 8th, a regional gover governor in Luhansk, uh, Sergei Gade, 
reported that a Russian bomb destroyed a school there, killing at least 60 people. Uh, the school was being used as a shelter uh, housing about 90 people. From Reuters, quote, 30 people were evacuated from the rubble, seven of whom were injured. 60 people were likely to have died under the rubble of buildings, Gadai wrote on the Telegram messaging app, adding that two dead bodies have been found. Reuters could not immediately verify the report. So uh, we've got the governor in Luhansk saying that Russia just bombed a school where civilians were trying to hide from bombs. Yeah, well, I've heard the claim that those are accidental because they're just using old weaponry. You know, they've been cleaning out the the warehouses, and so a lot of the missiles are like from the '60s or '70s. But I don't know. That seems to be a bit spot on. Like there've been a whole lot of like, oh, this place is packed with civilians getting blown up. Oh, we accidentally used the old school-seeking missiles. Right. I didn't realize we had those loaded. Yeah, just yeah, it's, it seems to be way, way too much of too much of that going on. Like that theater in Marvel, with you know children painted out front, and it was uh, what, and and there's just like a lot of grass around it too. Like it doesn't look like it was next to like anything. Like right, it definitely like, seems like it was targeted. Yeah. Uh, well, they thought they were going to uh, I would assume they thought they were going to crush their will to fight uh, make the West run away scared and say oh we got to end this war so you know women and children stop dying but instead it inspired the West to get involved and the Ukrainians to fight harder and yeah there's like a lot of the people that are like Russophone and they were like I liked Russia I was sympathetic to Russia and they have been invaded and no, now I'm, you know, like it's, it's reinforced their Ukrainian identity when before they, you know, were kind of on the fence on it. Right. Like I have cousins in, in Russia. Yeah. My, my grandmother, grandmother lives in Russia. So, yeah. But now, yeah, lines drawn in the sand. Definitely. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of them, if you would speak like ethnically and linguistically, um, even though they were on the Ukrainian side, I mean, they they would be Russian because a lot of people moved there for jobs and such. But just because, you know, it's like if I moved to Canada and my kids grew up in Canada, they're going to be Canadian. You know, or they're like, identify as Canadian because we lived here. Right. Um, especially they go to Quebec and they are speaking French, you know, as a different language. Altogether, well, I was going to ask, how much, yeah. how much difference is there between uh, Ukrainian language and Russian? I've, I've heard they're mutually intelligible, but I've also heard that 60% of the vocabulary is different. And I know when I'm, you know, like I've been studying Russian a little bit, and I know when I'm scrolling through Ukrainian, I can pick up on a lot of the words. Um, but Does it seem kind of similar to, say, like English and Spanish? It's a lot closer Maybe. than that. I think it would be like Italian and Spanish, but I think even closer. Okay. Um, uh, I think maybe those 60% of words that are different are maybe words that aren't used as often, and the 30% that are the same are, like, um, identical or something, or, like, the more common the more common expressions. Right. But maybe kind of like how here in America we'll call that thing an elevator, and in Britain they call it a lift, or yeah. we'll say apartment, and they say flat, sort of like that. 
Yeah, but it's a, little, a bit more, like it's enough that it's another language. Well, the Russians will call it a dialect, but it's considered enough to be another language. But there's a whole lot of stuff that when the words are different, you get in context. Um, and okay, that makes sense. So, but it, but also, it's person... kind of a continuum too, because Polish and Ukrainian have a lot of similarities, and like, so <laughs> the Ukrainian is kind of somewhere in the middle of Polish and Russian, which makes sense because of where they are geographically. Right. So, is it? It, it, it kind of sounds like the same way uh, European languages will be based off of uh, Romantic languages. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, yeah, they have the same. I mean, obviously, and... not all <laughs> European languages are based yeah. off that, but. Well, oh, yeah, yeah like you mentioned, French like, and Italian, and Spanish, yeah, right. Portuguese and Romanian, the um, and Catalan. <laughs> uh, what was it? The uh, the Slavic languages separated later than than the Latin languages, so there's there's less difference between them. But um, yeah, there's still different languages, and uh, but. Yeah, they're they're supposed to be able to kind of understand each other, but at the same time, it's maybe it's about like Scots and English. That might be a better okay. comparison, or at least a most a more understandable. Yeah, comparison, you know, like, and maybe how you do some conjugations might be different. And like English, or like we have cows and uh, Scots coon. I think that's how they say it. Um, so the some pronunciations are going to be different. A good instead of a, a how or I've got a good. I don't know. I'm probably going to have some Scots people, people Scots speakers, <laughs> slap me in the face. But anyway, yeah. yeah. That, so somewhere in between the difference in Scots and English and um, uh, Spanish French and Italian, and, or Spanish and Italian. Yeah, probably either Spanish and Italian or Spanish and Portuguese. Maybe closer to Spanish Portuguese. But, right. Yeah, I get anyway. I, I get the general <laughs> yeah. general vibe of what you're saying. Yeah. They're not like completely alien to one another. They're culturally similar. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Lexicon. Right, well. Yeah. Well, that uh, sums it up for this week's raw file news. Uh stay tuned. I apologize for the delay for Angleton part three. I've had uh fairly eventful week uh, that has kept me from my duties but it is almost complete and we'll uh hopefully we'll be out by the time this comes out uh we may drop them on the same day and in the meantime you can get more information links to our uh our, to our sources at our website ciafiles.net uh, there you can also find links to support us if you so wish that uh, there's our buy me a coffee link and our patreon as well as our merch store from threadless all those links are at the website ciafiles.net speaking of which i went ahead and bought a cia files shirt myself and i gotta say it's pretty comfortable and it fits me well uh it made me feel i'm a big guy i'm tall and Doubt, I guess you'd say, <laughs> um, but it made me feel like I didn't feel dumpy in it. That felt uh, it fit well and it was comfortable. So I'm going to be wearing that out a lot. Spread the word. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at CIA Files Podcast, Instagram at CIA Files, Facebook.com CIA Files, 
And in the meantime, uh, stay safe out there.